My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight's guest in the studio obtained his undergraduate degree from Marietta College and his Doctor of Medicine from The Ohio State University College of Medicine. Now, following his internship, he joined the Navy and he retired after 24 years of service with the rank of captain. His operational tours while on active duty included Battalion Surgeon, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, Regimental Surgeon, 9th Marines, Medical Officer, USS Truxton, CGN-35, Fleet Surgeon, Commander, 7th Fleet, Command Surgeon, U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, and Fleet Surgeon, U.S. Pacific Fleet. His second chapter has just begun because Kenneth is now an accomplished author with four books in print and another on the way. Tonight in the studio, Kenneth Andrus. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's it's great to, to see you. And, and here in sunny Hawaii, hit the uh, it's a great afternoon, and uh, so it's um, looking forward to our time together and uh, talking about my books and uh, whatever else comes up. And and I'm really interested in this too because the reason when we first started talking to each other. I thought it was so interesting that that you did so many things in the Navy in medicine and and one thing from going in the Navy and doing all that instead of doing a private practice, why you chose military service. And then when you got done with your military service, you weren't really done. You started a whole new chapter in your life. You started writing, which started a little before you got out, but you started writing. You post about food that you're making all the time. You post about the gardening that you're doing in Hawaii. And you've really kind of started a whole second chapter. So I want to start out the interview by talking about early life. And were you from a military family? Was this ingrained into you? Because it's always been interesting why you chose this path to me. Well, there there are two things. Uh, one was uh, uh, my dad served in World War II as a medical officer. He was in New Guinea. Uh, with the army and uh, then went to Manila and then was actually part of the occupational forces there. And then my uncle was actually helped write the Japanese uh, constitution in the war. He was a MacArthur staff. And so that sort of was, and then of course, uh, even before I met my wife, her dad was a CB before they even were called CBs. He spent the time building airstrips on Bora Bora. And so it was just sort of something I've always sort of been interested in. Um, the, the, Back end part of this thing was sort of interesting because my uh, I lost my mom early in my life, and so when my dad remarried, my my stepbrother decided to drop out of college and join the army, and so he got on the 101st just as they were standing up for Vietnam. Went a tour, did a second tour of the special forces, and uh, with the advisor to the Vietnamese Airborne, which probably kept us kept him alive. But unfortunately, he came back pretty kind of screwed up from an experience, as uh, you know, happens to a lot of guys. And uh, so I was sitting in college while this was going on. I'm sitting there, well, my draft number is 361, but I want to go to medical school and they're still drafting doctors. So I went ahead and went to medical school and I said, well, you know, 
uh, maybe I'll just, I'll get really bright here and join the Navy. That way I won't go into the, get drafted in the Army. And uh, so anyway, so what happens, long story short, is my first tour is with the 3rd Marine Division. So I went to the, caught the tail end of Vietnam anyway. So that, <laughs> that didn't quite work out <laughs> like I had planned. And uh, so there's a lot of the guys I've had, we'd be sitting there and uh, having a lot of these like, what the heck moments, <laughs> like what am I doing here? But it was uh, an incredible experience and I really bonded to those guys. Uh, you know, my experience as a medical officer, I told my corpsman, I said, well, if there's some grunt who's nuts enough to get shot at, then there's got to be somebody nuts enough to take care of them. Well, which sort of epitomizes the uh, the medical corps' uh, view of their relationship with the Marines. Uh, there's, I always felt when I was going into some crazy thing, like uh, in the end of Vietnam, going into a hot LZ, there'd be some grunt to take a bullet for my sorry ass. And uh, so that gives you a bit of confidence. And then if I can go on with this just for a sec, I was with uh, the medical officer of the 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And my battalion chapter was a guy named Vic Krulak. And, uh, of course, his dad was the uh, you know, FMF pactor in Vietnam, Brute Krulak. And, uh, and then, of course, his brother, Chuck, went on to become the Commandant. So I got to know the family a little bit. And, uh, in fact, uh, the, one of the guys just behind me, their son is also as an internist like I was and, and was FMF doc. Anyway, so the, uh, that was really pretty cool. So my, uh, my battalion surgeon became a three-star, my battalion CEO became a three-star in FMF pack. And, uh, and then during the evacuation of Vietnam, my boss was Al Gray, you know, another future commandant. So it was just, uh, you know, just by happenstance, I just met some incredible men early on in my career that really kind of helped mold where I went in my attitude. Well, and, and you mentioning that, what what was interesting to me about the beginning of your career is you talk about Vietnam and you talk about kind of getting thrown into the fire there um, as, you know, if you're going to learn to be a doc, that's that's the place that you want to do it. Uh, I mean, you're going to see everything. The, the big thing with me was the difference, though. Can you talk about the difference in being with Marines as, uh, you know, a medical officer and then coming over to the Navy as a medical officer? And the difference is we, we can start with your Vietnam experience, but as we move through kind of the changes that were made in technology and medicine in kind of how the, we take care of troops. So if you'd start yeah. with that, just talking about being with the Marines in the opposite of being with the Navy. Well, uh, you know, they're, they're completely uh, different organizations and each, and I found that what the, the common thread was, rather than different thread, if I may, was they're all just professional, dedicated, focused on their mission. And, uh, and so as a, as a young guy coming in out of college and medical school, pretty much uh, naive to the world, uh, that was a, a great experience and really help mold me. Um, the, the Marines always kind of got me. <laughs> they, they always in garrison, they were just always seem to be a little out of control, like who's in charge. But man, I want to tell you when it was time for a mission, like when we, we got spun up for uh, the end of Vietnam, you know, the evacuation of Saigon and then later on the Maguez, uh, man, you want to talk about a professional focused bunch. There's just no screwing around. They knew what they were going. And, uh, and I felt very comfortable with that, even though, 
you know, the one time I was sitting on the deck of the Blue Ridge and the guys behind me were, were loading, you know, their magazines and slamming them in. And I'm looking around like, dang, <laughs> what, what have I got myself into? <laughs> so at any rate, uh, that turned out pretty well uh, in spite of myself. Uh, you know, it's interesting, my 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 H&S company, Gunny, bless his heart. <laughs> he had to put up with a lot. And I remember the first time I came back in the field, my back at the time, we still had 45s. And this thing was just a rusted piece of junk. And so he looked at that and said, damn, Doc. <laughs> and so next day he came up with a plastic German Luger squirt gun. He said, here, you use this. <laughs> and I said, if you ever need a weapon, there's going to be plenty of them laying around. So I'm sort of like, oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, uh, so those guys are just straight shooters. And, uh, and of course, the guys I came in with were almost all the Vietnam vets. Uh, one of my best friends at Camp Schwab, I didn't learn until years after the fact that Mike won the Navy Cross at Quezon. Never said a word about it. Didn't have a clue. And then I read about it and said, dang, Mike, <laughs> you're nuts. <laughs> so, well, Do you think that was a little bit of a different time? Because I've talked to other guys who had dads that were in World War II and Korea, things like that. And they said that that with that generation, they really just didn't talk about those kind of things. Do you think it was the same for the Vietnam era too? They just didn't talk about it. No, we, no, the guys, again, just didn't talk much about stuff. They pretty much bottled up a lot of their the emotions. You know, when I was in the VA years, you know, years later, I forgot the Navy tried private practice for a few years, couldn't stand it. So it went to the VA for 12 and, uh, and of course, there, the, the emphasis was different. All these guys, kids coming in from Afghanistan, you know, some from Vietnam, but the kids coming in from the latest stuff, Iraq, Iraq and, uh, and the stand. And, and they were a little more inclined to, to talk about stuff. I think it was, you know, you know the guys were, were essentially given permission to be able to talk about this crap that happened. A lot of them wouldn't. Uh, the flip side of that was, I remember one guy came up to me, he was never spending time in the military, he says, oh, were all of our, all these vets, were they all Green Berets? <laughs> and you could pick up the guys who were just, you know, throwing the BS out in the clinic real quick. And I'd, I'd sort of gently call them out on it. And, uh, and then we get down to business. Well, it's interesting <laughs> that you talk about that because I wanted to talk about the difference because you said you tried private practice. And you didn't like it, so you went to the VA for 12 years. I guess the question would be, after you do medical school, I would think that you kind of have the world at your beckoning when you get out of medical school, you do your internship. Why choose the military? I, I know that you had a military family, and that may be the reason, but why choose the military over a life of where you could make vast amounts of money, become world-renowned? What, what made you do the difference and make the sacrifice? You know, with, without sounding too corny about it, it's really a, a, a sense of duty and commitment. And after uh, spending time with these guys, um, you, 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 you just, they're a family. And interesting that my wife's a, uh, a retired Navy pediatrician, she's an 062, and she, she noticed the same thing. She said, you know, when we get out, the difference between the Navy and the civilian stuff is the folks we take care of in the Navy, they're our family. Yeah, and, I, uh, I, I get that. And, and the, the difference 
from that and a practice, you know, out in the civilian world, I would guess would be that it's a more intimate setting. You you have it to is. not only work on these guys, but you live around them. Everyone lives on post. There's not really a separation there. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I I think it's good. And, and it was interesting, uh, jumping forward to the Gulf War, I noticed a, a big difference. So at the time when I was a Seventh Fleet surgeon, we ramped up to become nav sent. At least my boss did. And he just dragged the rest of us with him. And so when the uh, when we pulled out of, out of the Blue Ridge and uh, set sail for the for the Gulf, of course the command staff flew down to Subic and they flew us on a P three. He got us there sooner, but um, when the ship left, the commands at Subic essentially adopted ships that deployed. Okay. And so the families were taking care of each other, and what I noticed is these poor f- troops that got you know, mobilized the reserve and the, and the guard, uh, they just left home. There was no support system for their families unless you had an right. extraordinary man element left behind that actually understood that and took care of it. And so that's another big deal. Uh, you know, it's interesting. And I reported, first reported into uh, St. Pat Fleet as a fleet surgeon, my four-star boss, Amos Latimer, who used to be chief of naval personnel. He said, you know, Ken, um, the, the main thing, your first duty out here is to make sure that the family's taken care of. So that was the fourth. And he said, you know, you'll, you can take care of the operational stuff and do the op plans and all that kind of stuff. You know, the day-to-day fleet support stuff, but you got to be attuned. You know, I'm what we call in the Navy, the responsible line commander. So he essentially oversaw all the, the Naval hospital CEOs. And he says, you're my liaison with the CEOs of these naval hospitals and you got to make sure they're paying attention. So did you ever get while you were in and you were doing this with these hospitals, did you ever get the sense that, uh, the care wasn't good enough? I know you've written an article, um, about transforming Navy medical operations and, and things like that. I read that, but, did you ever feel that the Navy or the military in general could be doing a better job um, than they were and not necessarily the hospital's fault or anything. It's funding. It's how they take care of it. The big machine rolling through. Did you ever feel that way? Or did you feel like we were kind of at the leading edge of what we could be? Um, There's actually two parts that the, the first of course is your command element. And, uh, and my wife and I had a tour at, uh, at Camp Lejeune and the CO, XO, chief nurse and head administrator were all, were all canned. And the morale there was just terrible. So that's, you know, that's a leadership element, but you'll find that anywhere. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things that just turned me off, frankly, in the civilian community. There was just nothing. Um, on the medical side, it was interesting enough, and I spent two tours at the Naval Hospital in Pensacola, which is a family practice training hospital. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was a now as a chief of medicine and the director of medical services. And it was, you know, it was incumbent upon us to make sure that the kids coming in understood the mission and took good care of their patients. And uh, and during that time, it was something I picked up in the Marines. I I would forgive somebody for making a mistake because there were young guys right out of medical school, women too. And, and that stuff happens, unfortunately. 
But if I had a, a young doctor who would lie and try to cover up a mistake, then I would just go after him. And, uh, and so that was one thing. So the, the main thing is, and then the other thing the Navy did that you don't see in the civilian world, to make these kids focus, and the ones that had scholarships from, from medical school just whined about it, is we'd have our what we call the utilization tour. You'd come in after your first year out of medical school for an internship, and then more times than not, they were sent to the fleet. You know, the FMF or the or the service guys. Right. You know, and and they came back different people, just focused on what they needed to do, and and so when you're talking about the care of people, if you're if you're not focused on that. And uh, I mean, you can go in there and learn how to take care of a heart attack and all this other kind of stuff. But you don't if you don't put the human element in there, uh, then you got a problem. And that's why what I, I saw the big difference between the military and the civilian community. There just wasn't that emotional attachment to the people who are taking care of. They're just numbers. And for the place I worked, it was there were money. And so it just pissed me off. <laughs> well, do you think, though? In by you going into combat, by you seeing what you saw, and and they say a lot during Korea, during Vietnam, it was a lot of meatball surgery and just putting people back together. Don't you think that puts you almost light years ahead of anybody that's at the same time out of medical school as you had been? Because you're seeing it on a front row seat to like the greatest show ever. And it sets you guys kind of apart. Do you not agree? Oh, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I, you know, fortunately, I didn't see a lot of the what you call the meatball stuff. I saw enough to, to, to shake me up. And uh, and the other thing it did is when I was looking around, you know, the, that was it. I was it. <laughs> and like I was on with the Marines or especially when I was on the trucks in the middle of nowhere. And we had two other ship with us. It was me and the nearest evac site was launch tool. And, you know, thousands of miles away. And I looked around and if there was a problem, you know, you, <laughs> you're looking over your shoulder like, where's my staff? Right. And, man, you grow up in a hurry and you take responsibility because if you don't, you you uh, you wash out and those guys leave. <clears throat> well, let's talk about those doctors that you said, because I want you to kind of explain that a little bit more. When you said you'd have a doctor that would couldn't stand up for what they did or they tried to cover it up or whatever that you would go after them. Can you go into a little more detail about what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I would call that intellectual dishonesty. Okay. And, uh, and it's people just doing stuff to cover their ass, you know, and it's just not doing the right thing. And, uh, and I think, you know, and nowadays, I think, you know, those of us who've served, you know, we look around what's going on around us and we'll say, well, geez, that's one of the, a major missing element is, uh, is your, your responsibility to your, the people around you and to you and more importantly to yourself. And, you know, I, uh, I had, uh, one of my PTSD guys talked to me a little bit and he, and he told me, he said, you know, one of the things the guys told me, he said, you know, if you deny this stuff, you know, you're, you're lying to yourself. You're hurting yourself more than others. And so if you don't, if you don't fess up and, and deal with stuff and that, that can go anything in your life, actually, uh, then you got a problem. And so that's one of the things I think in my 24 years in the Navy, uh, helped instill in me is, 
And sometimes, of course, it just, you know, if you're in a leadership position, well, you don't have to be in a leadership position. They could take a, an emotional toll on you, just trying to, to toe the line and doing it right. And uh, anyway, so that, uh, you know, complicated stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can see that very much so. And, and when you say that, though, you compared it kind of to today. And I think a problem that we have today, whether it be, military, whatever it is, just people in general is accountability. I think we've lost yep. focus of accountability for whatever that may be to whatever individual person that you're saying it to. I think we've lost that sense of accountability. I, I see a lot where it's other people's problem. It's other people's reason why it happened. Why do you think that we've lost that in society? It's a, uh... Uh, again, it's 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 sort of you know it's a lot of the stuff. It's just the the, the newer generation and, I, and even ours and mine because I'm an old fart. Um, is you see this stuff and it's it's sort of everybody's looking around for instant gratification. And and you have it, I don't, I want it. And there the the sense of worth that worth ethic, uh, responsibility. Um, just do what you need to do. And, uh, and so I, I see the folks who just got their face glued into the, you know, you see these kids walking around with their faces zeroed in on their, on their iPhone, you know, here it is, <laughs> which I hardly ever use. And, and they're just not, a, they're just detached from reality. And, and then boy, when they get hit with the reality, they don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> so, and maybe you don't know the answer. How do we get back to that, though? How do we start instilling that back? Because I think you would agree we've lost it in almost every aspect of society. And and when yeah. you lose that much, it's hard to swing it back in the other direction. Yeah, this it's the old uh, thing we see in church and on bumper stickers. It's just you know little little random acts of kindness, even you know treating even you know rather than lashing out. Uh, just trying to take a deep breath. It's like, you know, typing out the email and then you blow it out and rather than hitting the send button, you just hit the uh, delete button. You know, you, you blow it off, get over with it, get off with it. Uh, and, and so I see a lot of this stuff and then, and, and all the social stuff going on. And I, I really try, and of course it's difficult because so I'm certainly far from perfect, but I just, I look at that saying, I, I'm just not in your shoes. I just, I just don't understand where you're coming from. I may not like it, but on the other hand, I don't know where you're coming from on that. You know, why are you saying this stuff? And, and the problem is, is, is a lack of civility. You just can't sit down with folks like the old days and actually agree to disagree and have a, a conversation. So try to reach some common ground. That's what I tried to do when I was in my leadership positions is I'd be looking around and all this disparate stuff. And I started like, dang, here's, you know, and I try to get folks together and, and work stuff out. Sometimes it worked, uh, you know, often and many times it didn't. Um, and then, and then as an individual, you, you gotta, you gotta work on elevating somebody else's kind of elevating their self-esteem. I mean, some of these folks just have no sense of who they are or where they're going. And uh, and so kind of reaching out and just doing what you can as an individual it might be just little stuff. But then all the little stuff eventually adds up. There's an article I, re I read years and years ago. Uh, 
I guess it was Smithsonian Magazine of all places. It was about the guys doing the, the sweeps for cod on, a, on an aircraft carrier. You know, the, before air ops, you, you, you line up all the, the guys in the stern on the flight deck and you'd walk forward, just abreast, looking for, uh, you know, debris, stuff to be sucked into an engine and uh, cause a catastrophic engine failure and off the side. And, and so the title of the article was Little Cogs Make Big Wheels. And so in, in leadership and even in life, you, you have to realize that even the folks, little people, if you will, which is a bad term really, um, contribute. And what they contribute in their own way is, is, has worth. And, and so nowadays there's just so much stuff flown around for, for as clickbait that, uh, you know, uh, God, how do you respond to that? I mean, it's just anger. I look at some of these news channels and I flip through a variety of them. There's a couple I just can't watch because they're just too much off the rails for me. But I, but I look at a variety of stuff and, and I say, God, a lot of this stuff is just there to generate anger. Yeah. I'm like, dang, you know, if that's how you start your day off, uh, that's, that's not a good thing. And, uh, and so the other thing I do is I look, Say I even look at the at BBC and occasionally I look at Al Jazeera because I'll look for what's not being said. And uh which is not much anymore though. No, no. <laughs> I mean, and so it's interesting what the, the emphasis of a lot of the different news channels and things are and uh, and what they focus on and what they choose to, you know, conscience since it's a lot of stuff recorded and, and they hire the people to do this is consciously avoid it. And, and so you're, we're not going to get very far. I think if, uh, if you can't, um, sit down and, and look at an, an issue and, uh, and address it and just blow off everybody in somebody else's opinion is just, you know, so much BS, uh, cause there's a reason they arrived at that decision, you know, for better or worse. I'm glad you brought that up because I asked you, you know, before we did the show, if we could talk about some of the health stuff that was going on. Now, of course, you told sure. me that you don't practice anymore or anything like that, but I'm sure just from your history, you keep up on things. And there's some things that I really want to talk about that I think a lot of people want to talk about. And I just don't think you can really have an open discussion about it anymore because it's so passionate on one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. And I want to start out talking with the state of the health of the world. It seems like the world has gotten, uh, I don't know if you would say sicker, I, I guess if that's a word that you could use for it, but it seems that, that health has definitely gone down in even the last 10 to 15 years has really gone down around the world. And I, I was wondering your thoughts on that because we talk so much about COVID and we talk about the pandemics and we talk about uh, different things that are right in our face, but we don't talk about the state of health in general about the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think part of the, the impression of things are getting worse is, is the fact that we're becoming more aware. Okay. You know, with this. Uh, uh, with all the stuff, with the instant news sources, I mean, God almighty, for this, you know, 20 years ago, how many folks were talking about the sedan 
and all the crap going on there. The uh, and uh, and so you look at that thing. So part of it is this thing where where is this an awareness of what's going on and just and how how tough life is in some of these other places in the world that frankly you know, we never even paid attention to, let alone even heard of. And so that's I think part of it. And so and then there's the uh, you know, how do you go out and then it's, it's, it just becomes kind of overwhelming when you start looking at it. It's like, how do you deal with this? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, there are, you know, I look at, I try to look at some of the sex stories and stuff. You look at malaria and, and some of the books that I did as a, as a Navy research unit out of Jakarta. And so after the war, you know, we started sending folks into Vietnam and one of the things they were working on to help with that was interesting enough, the veterinarians to take care of the buffalo. And so it's, it's, it's integrated. It's, it's trying to get folks, you know, clean water. It's just basics. You know, one of the things that I, uh, I used to get some flyers on is the medicines sans frontiers, you know, doctors without borders. And I, I looked at some of the stuff and I said, man, those guys are just nuts. The places they go. And, uh, you know, they were walking around in, in Syria in the middle of stuff. And, uh, and, uh, they were near, and I said, that takes real courage. And so, and that's not, you know, boy, everybody can't do that. In fact, you know, the vast majority can't. So there are, there's a cadre of people out there who, who do their best. And, and so you're, you're back to like, well, what can we do to help things? And so, uh, some of the stuff that I've done is, you know, I look for any number of, of charities that, uh, you know, not the Navy relief type where they just give it to nobody and everybody. And, uh, and I say, well, who are these, which of these groups are actually really doing some good? They're, they're overhead because you can get this data, how much is overhead, how much goes to what they're doing. And uh, anyway, so there's, there's, there's that. So, and uh, you know, it's, it's getting into, you know, basic health immunizations for the kids and, and boy, that's kind of, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but it's no, a, it, it that, does. Uh, but when you bring up like malaria and you bring up places like the Sudan and Syria and things like that, I'm talking about just in the United States where oh, they're okay. seeing the plague in, in like San Francisco and LA because of the, yeah. the garbage and stuff. And we're seeing yeah. these things that we never thought would take hold again that have. And I'm, I guess I'm almost asking the question, is it more, fear mongering or is it a real problem that we're looking at well uh i i think it's a little bit more because you know everything is seems nowadays seems to be politicized Absolutely. and uh, for for better or worse um you know well we can talk about COVID in a bit but i mean there's there's lots of and i, I joked and that we were doing our pre-interview i said well i'm about as misinformed as anybody on that <laughs> and uh, and everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's, you know, that's back to the internet. Everybody's an expert. Absolutely. And part of that is, is the rollout of this stuff. And, uh, you know, being a doc, my wife being a pediatrician, you know, I'm, I'm one that I think immunizations do, do well. And, uh, and, you know, we can probably talk in circles and all that, but, but anyway, the, I, this the you know and when the elections came up you know that was you know COVID was immediately politicized and and so that immediately got the country polarized i mean you're not and and so we're you're just not going to get very far if you do that because then you get a group what i call op you know oppositional defiant okay. so no matter what up 
it's you're it, it's bad and you're against it. And so one of the things as far as addressing a lot of the problems like health issues and things like that is is it's just focusing on on realistic solution to the the problems. You know that's easier said than done. Um, but unless you start places, and, and a lot of times, of course, the government's, not, you know, again, here's your, you know, the world view. I'm one that says, well, government, you need government for certain things, certainly for military and big ticket things like that. But when I was living in Pensacola and these hurricanes would come rolling in and just wipe out the, the coast, uh, you know, here's the uh, FEMA, which is flailing around. And so who did the best work? It was the NGOs and non-government organizations and the church groups who come rolling in there. And, and they understood the people and what they needed. They'd actually go in there and ask, it's, what do you need? You know, the folks in Louisiana coast, a lot of the, you know, the old Cajuns down there and the, and the Vietnamese that integrated after Vietnam, you know, they're independent. They didn't want anybody's help. Right. So I said, you're strangers. You're not one of us. Get out of here. And, and so part of that says, well, okay, you don't need us, but what can we give you to help you build your own house? You know, we won't build a house for you. You just tell us, do you need anything? So you just can't get in their face. You can't shove this stuff down people's throats. And of course, you know, Americans are kind of, we're kind of ornery cusses anyway as a, as a group. And uh, <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's kind of hard to tell Americans to do much of anything they don't want to. And uh, and so I think that's it. It's it's back down to the grassroots. When you, when you talk about that and you say that, that they didn't want people to come in, I think that, that a problem that they have, and I'll, I'll use them as an example, um, is a, a lot of what's done to cure problems is just throw money at it. Right. Uh, and you, you've said yourself, you look for organizations that are actually putting it to a cause, not just throwing money at it. So when you talk about COVID and you say that it's, it's you know, completely polarized the United States and you have this uh, on one side and the other on the other side, and, and they're so far extreme from each other that you have schools being canceled, you have where people can't go out, you have some states that you can go everywhere without a mask, you have some states that you have to wear a mask everywhere, and it feels like there's not really anything with COVID or the, the, the medicine that's popping up today that's really rooted in science. It's more of my science. Does that make any sense to you? It's, it's each yeah, individual I, I, science. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you, you have, you know, everybody, I say with the information available, everybody's sort of an instant expert. And I said, well, okay, if you're a board certified internist like I am or a virologist and you're, you're seeing all this stuff, then I, then I may actually sit down and, and, and really listen to you. So first thing I do is I listen to who's, who's saying this stuff. Right. And, and see if they ha it has any veracity. I said, okay. Uh, I'm here. My my wife was chatting about this thing today. She saw some gal put a thing in talking about some really obscure scientific theorem. <laughs> and, well, if you understood this theorem, you'd know all about COVID. Well, and my wife pointed out and said, well, this theorem came out in the early 19th century and it had to do with bacteria. It had nothing to do with virology. Right. And so she just bit her tongue and said, Okay, well, if you knew about this, then you wouldn't say this. And so you have to sort of sort through all the all that stuff, all the fluff, and the flack that you're flying through, and 
and and find some folks that actually have a reasonable voice in this stuff. I mean, I've got you know you can listen to folks on on the extremes of both sides. Absolutely. And I'm saying like, holy tamale, uh, we're just not going to go. And so the other problem is though is the the folks that are probably reasonable voices and stuff have kind of been drowned out by all the but all the the shrieking stuff from folks who who really don't know. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Fauci. I geez, when I was a, a resident at Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, he was just a top of the line uh, guy in rheumatology and immunology. And because of what I was learning, you know, just listening to him and his articles and stuff, I almost became a rheumatologist. Well, you know, what the heck happened there? So here, here's right. a guy who should be a, a, a reasonable voice, and he's just getting washed around the surf, you know, banging up against across the coral, and I don't know where the hell he's standing now. And so he's basically, unfortunately, at least in my mind, has lost so much credibility. And so even the folks that, that could be doing some good have just got so kind of wrapped up in stuff, either by by intent or not, that uh, nobody listens to them. At least a lot of don't. A lot of people don't. And so what do you do with that? Well, and and he's like the main guy that they yeah. say that everybody should be listening to. But you're right. It's it's wishy-washy, and it feels this way in one month, and then feels a different way in a different month. And no, I guess it's, I I guess the core of what I'm asking though is, with so many different things, with states treating it so differently, let's use two extremes: California and Florida, two extremes of each other. Uh, and you look around and you see that. You know, Florida hasn't really risen that much in their their COVID numbers and things like that. And, and you look at a place like California where economies are shutting down and all that kind of stuff, and Florida is kind of thriving. Where do we go for the right answer, though? I know that you say you got to listen to the, the the sane voice or the, the person that's just kind of putting it out there, but it doesn't really seem like that can be heard anymore at all. Yeah, and that, and that's a problem. I mean, if you if you can actually sit down and look at the data, but again, it, it's sort of driven by uh, your 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 philosophy of of how much do you leave to the individual to uh, and how much do you live? You know, and those who rely on the government to just sort of the hand feed them, and you need to take care of me. So part of that thing is this drift to um, well, somebody needs to take care of me. It, it's interesting, just to, to, as an, an aside, it, this thing just popped in my head when I was, when I got out of the Navy, I had some retired Air Force colonel walk into the clinic. He was just shook his head and he sat down and he says, my God, he, he was walking around the grocery store and he says, there's all these people walking around and there's nobody in charge. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's it. Uh, you, you, you look at the, uh, and and what we're seeing now is just the the inability of folks to be able to have civil discussions, and uh, and and just boy, how can I say that again? Um, anyway, that's, uh, I guess that's why I'm running around to. I think part of the solution is is just, and I don't know where it's coming yet. I mean, you you look at uh, the way things are now; it's so divisive, and uh, and all the you know, shrieking and. I, boy, I wish I had an answer. I'm sure <laughs> if I did, I, I still no, wouldn't run for office. 
and I think you do have an answer, but you know, when we go back to, when we look at it and we talk about, uh, I'm sure that you are kind of pulled in both directions because for so long you worked for that government and the medicine and things like that, but you also know a different side of it. Yeah. With your wife being a pediatrician, there's been so much stuff that goes around that says you should take these shots and not these shots and you should take this booster and not this booster. Uh, kids at this age should take it. Kids this age shouldn't take it. But then they're closing down schools and things like that. What's your thoughts on this whole immunization process for this? I know that you said that you backed immunizations, but we've gone about this one in a little different direction than we kind of ever have. Yeah, the, 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 the COVID stuff is just, and again, it's just sort of the kind of the hysteria that was kind of generated on. I mean, we still have, you know, the folks that uh, um, just don't believe in vaccinations and things. And of course, that would make Chris and I nuts because as a pediatrician, you'd see the, the kids coming in who did not have it, the uh, the meningococcal meningitis. Uh, oh my God, all the, the herpes and stuff. I mean, just nasty stuff. And somebody said, well, nobody has that anymore. You don't see anybody walking around. So my Chris told him, I said, this is in Pensacola. I said, we'll go down to the cemetery right down the road there and check the dates on the on the headstones. Yeah. There's a reason and, why no one has it. Yeah, there's a reason nobody has this stuff. And 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 I guess, you know, again, it's back to it's back to choice and you can you can do whatever you and I in fact it, it, interesting enough in Pensacola. And, you know, if you're in the medical field, especially if you're going to have any kind of surgery, you have to sign a thing called an informed consent. And that means that you sat down and your doc has told you all the horrible things that could possibly happen if you have this surgery or take this medicine, especially surgery. And these are all the bad things that can happen. So you sign and said, okay, I need the surgery. And so you sign this paper saying you have an informed consent. Well, I, we were in a cross people just having a hard time with that thing. So I drafted a thing called informed refusal. Okay. You know, just take 180 look at that. And it's a, and you tell them, I said, okay, this is what we, and, and usually it was, it was the folks who the Jehovah's witnesses who came in and you said, you, you really need a transfusion. <laughs> nope. I said, okay. And, and that's actually what drove at that time. I said, okay, that's your belief. That's fine. I'm not going to argue belief. This is, you know, best I can tell you, this is what we recommend. And if you don't, then what I need to have you do is sign this informed refusal, which is, you know, it's kind of a 180 out of looking at things. Absolutely. Uh, but, but that helped. And so, um, Folks, you know, they're people are fearful. They don't know who to believe, what to believe. Uh, they're just it's the, the spin doctors are out there, if you will. You know, not the medical types, but the, you know the you know the uh, the news media, the politicians. They'll take something and just spin it to something that you know favors their particular viewpoint. And and so you're left with a huge group of folks who just really don't know what to do. And a lot of them just don't have the time or the wherewithal to actually sit down and actually dig through all the data, you know, looking at California or Michigan and 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 what's and uh, Florida and uh, Oklahoma and uh, Hawaii is interesting where I live because you know, <laughs> we we have so many uh, folks of Japanese ancestry and stuff that you know if you ever spend any time in Japan if you get a cold you slap a mask on. <laughs> So for, for us living in Hawaii, it's no big deal. It's just, it's what's what you do. And, uh, and, and other folks just, 
don't like being told you will do this. Yeah. And uh, especially if, if nobody comes up with a compelling argument on why they should. Right. Yeah. They're on edge anyway. And so it just doesn't take much to trigger them. And I think you're right. And it, it, once again, when you say they, you know, they have to look through and kind of dig into their own learning and stuff, people don't have time for that. So they're going to listen to the loudest voice, whether that be the news, whether that be social media, whether it be their cousin, they're going to listen to that, which I think can lead to some bad things. But overall, I guess I'm asking for your opinion on, are we a healthier society today than we were before? Or are we kind of just, you know, middle of the road? We're kind of staying status quo. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm thinking we're kind of status quo a little bit. I mean, you know, people always, you know, people in quotes are always trying to compare us to the uh, European system and things. And then if you look at, uh, say, if you look at our friends up north in Canada, a lot of them are coming across the border to get their surgery or same with the Brits because right. because the waiting lines are so long for routine things. Um, one of the, you know, one of the things that you said, I think when at least my generation, that all grew up in Marcus Welby and all those TV shows and things, the uh, your reasons for going into medicine, I think, just kind of got skewed. There's still the, the idealistic, idealistic kids that want to go into medicine and, and do their best, but others are kind of interested in like, well, I need to go and make money. Of course, they go through college and go through med school and they've got like 120 grand of debt. Uh, New York University um, actually went in there and said, okay, med students, if, uh, if you go into these critical subspecialties, it's free. Your tuition, you don't, we're covering your tuition. And so some of the folks are getting to that. So some of the folks who get in this thing and they look at medicine as a way to make money. And, and my dad, who was an internist too, and he said, well, you know, if you want to make money, do something else. You know, uh, this is not the field to do that. And that's one of the things that really just grouses my butt about the HMOs and things like that. You know, the gatekeepers. At some extent, uh, the gatekeepers are, are not a bad thing to be able to keep costs going crazy because that's something I didn't like in private practice is some of the thing was, well, you need to have them come back and get this test or this test or a follow-up. And I said, no, you don't. You treat them, and if you don't get better, call me. You don't need to come back and just have, you know, getting people coming back just to, you know, the, so they can bill Medicare or Medicaid. Right. And, and so part of that stuff is that, you know, that, that, Jesus, you know, you, you, you have, you know, corporate, you know, corporate, no, that's not a word, but you, it, medicine, uh, you want being run by corporations. And so the, the, the field of medicine has changed over the years. So rather than the individual private die out there doing their thing, um, you know, um, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, you look at, at Kaiser, uh, even look at the VA, the VA is just swamped, um, but they've got just so damn many layers of bureaucracy in the VA. It's a government organization. So surprise, surprise. But it's also the second biggest healthcare organization in the country behind Kaiser. It's huge. And and it gets bogged down in politics and stuff. Um, and so, uh, and now I'll touch on that just a bit because the VA, you know, certainly takes a lot of hits. And, and some Absolutely. are just- Absolutely. I'm glad you brought this up. The majority are not. 
Uh, part of it is the, it's just learning how to, to weave your way through this, the system and know that the VBA is not the VHA, you know, the veterans benefit is not the, the health, the H part, the healthcare part. But the, um, the, I saw that and you get your, your average person and the HMOs love to enroll healthy people. They'd love to have me. I'm not in any, I'm an old fart, but I'm no medications and, and healthy as a darn horse. And, uh, and they love to have me. I come in once a year and they get their X amount of dollars per capita. And even if they get, you know, a patient just has simple, like simple high blood pressure or something, that's that or cholesterol, that's easy to take care of. And it's kind of in and out medicine. You get the VA, and I, when I first got in there, I started looking at the problem list of these guys and, and women, and I was like, holy crap, the average list of problems was seven. Private practice, it's one or two. And so these guys go in there, and I mean, Jesus, you look at the ones who come back, and we, well, you got, we all have people we know, and you, you look at how much is wrong with them. My God, you know, it's the back, the hypertension, the diabetes, they're smoking, they're drinking, they got PTSD, yada, da, 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 da. So you wind up with a list of stuff like this, and you have 20 minutes to try to take care of that. Yeah. But, I mean, but let me ask you a question. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Okay. Do you think that, that they have that list of seven compared to something in private practice? Because it's being paid for, and therefore they can be truthful about it, whereas in, in the private practice or out in the real world, when you're having to pay for every single thing, you're going to be careful about what you're approaching. You're only going to, you know, approach what really needs to be taken care of. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's true. So some folks will, will be in denial, but then of course I'll get the vets who are in denial because number one, they just they don't, don't like coming into the VA and it's not necessarily because they don't want to see doctors. It's just, it's going like tripler, you know, our VA at, in Hawaii is right up the tripler. So to get to our clinic, you got to go through the main gate. You got to have your ID check. And so it's going through all, all that sort of stuff that a lot of guys just don't want to deal with anymore. And so even before you even get into the walk through the door of the clinic, you're already, you know, you, you're, God, you're wound up, your blood pressure's up, you're, you're just angry, you're, you're, God, you're afraid, all this stuff. And, uh, and so that, so when you, I mean, man, in our turnover of docs, I would, I would say I lost in the four, 12, 14 years of the VA, probably when I was directly in charge of primary care, my turnover was probably 20% a year. Wow. The doctor just get burned out. Yeah. And just got crushed. It was just so hard. And, uh, and, and so again, you know, I, there's a way of doing that. And yeah, you have to, you had, again, you have to focus on, on the main stuff. And it's one of the things that, that I had trouble with the VA is we had these, what we call performance measures, which are really pretty good. So each doc in the VA is measured in primary care is measured against how they do. We track everything in that dang computer. I mean, your, how your blood pressure is doing, what medications you're on, uh, your lab results, yeah, da, 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 da. and you gotta, you gotta follow that stuff. And, uh, and so, but that, that is just brutal. 
to keep up with all that kind of stuff. And then the thing I noticed is some bright soul would decide to change the measure. So just by the time you get everything set up and everything's running smoothly, somebody in DC would say, Hey, I've got a great idea. My wife has a good, good, uh, <laughs> she had a good saying for that. She said, well, just because you don't have anything to do, doesn't mean you need to find something for me to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I said, true enough. And, uh, and so finally, I, I just finally got burned out. Of course, I, I turned 65, 66. So I said, Hey, I'm done with this. I've got my Navy retirement. I got my wife's retirement. I got my VATSP. I got my government retirement. Why am I doing this? Yeah. Grab security and I'm going to be a free range chicken. I'm going to go out and I've reached my life ambition of being a bum. Well, I'm glad that you bring that up because that moves us on to happier topics. So you live in Hawaii. I lived there for four years. It's a great place to live. Um, we talked about some of the stuff over there. Your big thing right now, though, other than your writing books, is your food. And you post all the time about food you're making. You really love food. So I want to talk to you about, one, living in Hawaii. And and like you said, there's that's a place to be a free-range chicken. Like, you got the beach. You got beautiful weather year-round. It's kind of the perfect place to retire. Um, why did you pick that place though? Because I don't think that a lot of military guys, they want to come back Conus. They don't want to live over there. Yeah. Well, if you spoke to, to, I'd say most of us, there's many times in the military, you, where you think, where you think you're going to retire has no bearing where you end up. Right. So, I mean, when I got out, I thought I was going to go back to central Ohio and, and live up with the Amish and set my little practice up and get, they could pay me in pies for all I care. Um, and then I got married and that took care of Ohio. She said, nope, <laughs> we're not going there. It's cold. Anyway, so what happened to Hawaii? We had, um, we, um, geez, how many tours? Well, our first tour, our first long tour after we got married was, was here. And, uh, and so Chris is now, we were both assigned to the clinic and one of my ADU jobs was, I was the flag doc, which was interesting. I mean, that opened up all sorts of doors. So as such, I worked on the bridge at sink packs. Every time Ramal Long or Ramal Crowell took off the Westpac, there I was, I was on with them. And that gets into some of the books and stuff later on. But anyway, so that was part of it. So we, we grew up, you know, and then our two girls were born here. And of course that'll bond you to a place real fast. Absolutely. And, and so then we went back and wandered around like we do in the Navy and uh, Japan, Pensacola, back to, you know, um, back to Pensacola to here, back to Pensacola. Anyway, back and forth, back and forth. Nothing, no short moves for us. I mean, these things were halfway around the world. And, uh, but, you know, where we had to be, had to be home. And my, my son-in-law, who's a, a Marine who should be picking up Lieutenant Colonel, pinning it on any month now. And Brian has a, a plaque in his, on the front wall saying, home is wherever the Marines send us. <laughs> and, and so, anyway, so uh, the kids were born here, and then we, we had another tour here. And uh, and we just met great friends, uh, you know, on up at Sink Pack, Amal Wong, uh, the four-star, basically uh, just adopted us. He had a different different attitude for the personal staff. He, had, he basically adopted us as family. Amal Crowell was kind of standoff, and he tried to treat everybody equally and didn't try to have favoritism. But Amal, even when Amal Wong retired, we all, as a staff, got together at his place in Annapolis. 
So that was part of that bonding and stuff. Anyway, so getting back to Hawaii, we just had just a great experience here. We, we met you know, our neighbors were just wonderful people. They threw a huge block party when we left. We still got the photo album they gave us. And, uh, and then we got down to Pensacola and retired and built this big old house down there. But we'd, we'd come back here. And every time we'd come back, it was just harder to leave. And so we said, well, VA, I called a friend of mine who happened to be the old CEO of Tripler. And when I was, the, he was CEO of Tripler, I was the, the uh, fleet surgeon. And I said, hey, Jim, you got any openings? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and so VA bought our house and moved us back. Oh, wow. And here we are. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. The only ones they move now like that are the SES, you know, the, the flag equivalents. Right. But anyway. Oh, I said, how can I pass that up? So, <laughs> so here we are, we're not moving. Now it is like living in a banana republic. I mean, there are like any other place, there's the local government here just, God, just pulls your hair out. I mean, they're just so incredibly incompetent. But all the other pluses are just outweigh that. In fact, you know, they have no state income tax on, on federal retired income. So Chris and I paid no t- income, uh, state income tax. Right. It's Florida without the property tax. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the food over there is amazing. Uh, I yeah. I loved it over there. I you know I was thinking today back through it. Um, my my oldest daughter yesterday actually made spam musubi. Um, she's never <laughs> been to Hawaii, but she knows how to make it. Uh, I miss the pork manapua. There's so much I miss over there. Um, of the food. Was that one of the, the the things that you really enjoyed over there too? Because you talk about food a lot. Well, yeah, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I sure how that came about. But I figured the other thing, of course, everything's so damn expensive out in town. And I said, well, dang, I can do that and taste just as well. And I'm not paying fifty bucks a plate. But anyway, uh, yeah. So you know, all my time and I spent a lot of time in Westpac. In fact, my entire career, that's the real Navy. That's not the guys that go to the Med in the North Atlantic. The Westpac are when you take your six, eight-month deployments and you're out in the middle of nowhere. And there's a really long tether, which is really great. If Like I was on a nuclear-powered cruiser, and we didn't have to gas up. We just took off. <laughs> and so, and uh, so that was great. But anyway, so we, you know, we lived in Japan. I spent all that time and traveling around with, with SyncPak. And... My God, Indonesia, Thai, I mean, you name it. I mean, I learned Korea so many dang many times and the PI, I can't even, I can't even count how many times I went there. But, and so that was just, you know, part of it. And we got to you know, meet, you know, go out dinners with our, our compatriots. When I was in the, in Japan, the, uh, the Japanese search general basically adopted Chris when I was in the Gulf. And, uh, and we met a, our little, the little Japanese gal that, took care of our kids when Chris had have to go into the hospital at night for a pediatric call. Um, and you know, he was just a sweetheart. And so we paid for her to even come back to Pensacola, stayed with her for six months. And of course that changed her whole, whole viewpoint of, of the world as far as the arranged marriage. <laughs> she got back to Japan and said, nope. Anyway, so back to food. So we we're just exposed to all this kind of stuff. Right. And, and so I just started cooking. And I uh, started getting cookbooks and stuff and tearing things out of magazines and out of Bon Appetit. And I had just had a whole shelf full of those things. And and so it's just a creative sort of thing. And so what I'll do is it's one of my, you know, it's creative. And I think you can sort of touch on things that kind of keep you going after you retire. And it's besides keeping physically active, is keeping mentally active. Yeah. And 
And so, uh, you know, the writing comes in there, the cooking comes in there. Uh, you know, I learned Hawaiian. So when I came out here, they asked me why I live in Hawaii. I want to live in Hawaii. And I answered in Hawaiian, which they had no idea what I said, I'm trying to teach myself French again. So it's just, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep active. And, and so the cooking is creative. And so I'll sit down there on a Sunday afternoon and, and decide, what kind of craving do I have? It's, is it Southwestern? Is it Korean? Is it French? Is it Italian? Is it, you know, Persian? <laughs> Whatever. So I'll sit down there and my poor wife says, well, here you are. <laughs> so, I mean, she can cook. She's the baker. Well, in saying that, I wanted to ask you your favorite kinds of food. Oh my. Uh, it uh, probably boils down to probably Mediterranean, Italian, Okay. Uh, and go ahead. Italian Greek, probably. Okay. Um, simple, do it well. To be prepared for you, what's your favorite kind of meal or your favorite meal to be prepared for you? Hmm. Well, it's been so long since I've had anything prepared for me. I tried steak <laughs> once at a really good steak place here and I couldn't stand it. Um, but you know, one of the things I do is I, I, I do a thing called what I call basic chicken. Okay. <laughs> and, and it's just, what I do is I just take a, a pan full of, of chicken thighs and I'll heat up some red pepper flakes and olive oil and salt and pepper the chicken and just throw it in there. And at the end of the cooking, you know, with about, you know, flip it over each side about five minutes. And at the end of that, at uh, you throw in, uh, throw in a handful of garlic and whatever herbs I want to use so you don't burn the garlic or the herbs. And then at the very end of that, then I throw in like two or three tablespoons of butter and just baste the heck out of it. And so that's, and so that's basic chicken. And then what I do is to go with other meals, I just change the, uh, the flavor around. So the other day, I just, instead of using uh, olive oil, I used duck fat. Okay. And, uh, and just did something like that. So anyway, it's just sort of a kind of experimenting on what you, you know, what's your favorite stuff. And then what I'll do is if I have basic chicken, then I can do any kind of side out one, which is just uses a kind of weird vegetable. You know, Chris likes, loves eggplant. So I'll do stuffed eggplant or uh, gracious. I don't know. It's just whatever kind of, I'll be living through the cookbook. And I said, that looks good. <laughs> and just do it. I fortunately I am screwed up too many. Well, that, that's normally how you post too. You, you show a picture of the cookbook, you show a picture of what you made and kind of what it's supposed to look like in, in the spirit world, wines, liquors, beers. Do you go in for any of that? Do you have a favorite wine, a favorite liquor? There you go. Okay. You know what? I just saw that stuff and I haven't been able to find it where I live, but I just saw that. Hard big. Yeah, if I have my I have my water bottle next to me and, and my bottle of scotch, and this is an Ardbeg Brocken. It's described as uh, what, is, what do they call it? Um, geez, it's so dang dark in here with my bad eyes. Turbulent. Okay. <laughs> another another word for 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 shoe leather, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, no, I somewhere along the line, I used to like wine, and somewhere along the line, I wound up being a Scotch snob. And so when Chris and I uh, went to Scotland, I uh, I really went nuts. And uh, and uh, so, you know, it depends on my mood, what the scotch. You want the real lighter ones, you know, the up of the highlands, or you take the ones from Elay with all the peat in them. 
and this one's a really peaty one. I mean, this this sucker is really has some some body to it. I guess you could say it has a lot of other stuff to it, but I'll choose body. And uh, and it's it's just fun to do. So depending on my my mood, not so what I'm cooking is I'll sit down at you know throw a look at Chris. I said, hey, is the center of the yard arm yet? <laughs> So I said, I'll look at two, three. I said, well, it's probably a little early, <laughs> early. For my, my but it, I think it's but, six back conus at that time. So I think you're good. Yeah, that's right. That's the thing. I said, well, listen, it's gotta be six o'clock somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so I'll, I'll do my, my meal prep and then I'll sit down and, and have my, have a good scotch. And depending on what I feel like, the other thing I've done is I got this big old crystal decanter and I've just pre-mixed uh, about, geez, I don't know, a quart or more of Manhattan's. <laughs> So that takes all the struggle out. So all I got to do is get my Italian cherry out of the fridge and uh, <laughs> drop, drop my junk ice cube in there and I'm set to roll. <laughs> well, I was about to say that sounds dangerous though, to have that much Manhattan laying around. Well, well it does take some, it does, <laughs> and it has some self-control occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're retired, you're a free range chicken. So I think you can do about whatever you want. I do want to point out something. Uh, you, you mentioned your wife a lot as we talk. Yeah. You guys have been married 43 years now, last September, yeah. right? 43 years. Yeah. We and met so, at the Naval Hospital. Say that one more time. We married and uh, met at the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth. She actually asked me out, the poor thing. She had no idea what she's getting into. <laughs> <laughs> now she's stuck with me. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's interesting uh, that you guys have been married that long just because of, like you talked about, being deployed six, eight months. That's hard on a lot of people. Was there something that you did to kind of make it through that? Uh, you know, yeah. And I listened to her for once. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> that's, that's always a, that's a dangerous path to take. But anyway, the, uh, it's interesting since we were – I was sort of grousing at some of my, my son-in-laws and I said, well, God dang it. They're not letting our daughters because both my daughters, one's a, a chiropractor and the other is a, uh, is a, uh, a, uh, mental health psychologist got her master's. And so I said, well, dang, these guys got to listen to my wives and they got the kids and all that. And they need to let the wives, they got to give them time to breathe. And, uh, and Chris said, well, you know, <laughs> When we were first married and had the kids, I wasn't getting a whole lot of room to breathe. And, uh, well, 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 of course, my, my line was, it said, well, if they'd get sick, I said, well, you're the pediatrician, do something. Right. <laughs> so that was, that was a fallback. There was a couple of other mistakes I made. Her, her birthday's on the 16th of February. And so I said, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'll just combine Valentine's and birthday. Oh, that's well, not a good idea at all. Well, that was a quick lesson learned. Yeah. But anyway, so, <laughs> but anyway, it's it's interesting that you know, uh, you know, obviously you go through life, you you change and stuff. And so, like when 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 Chris retired from the Navy and and then got out of medicine, that was a, that was a different life. And uh, and you know, she was a captain in the medical corps and in charge of a department and stuff. And all of a sudden, she was just some weenie who was not treated well, as far as the, the staff goes, as far as, you know, how they treated women in general. And so anyway, so that was just, uh, you gotta sit down and, and, and listen. I mean, she listens to me, but we, we're, we've 
got to the point we can just be comfortable. I can be sitting there just typing away in my book, having my scotch, and, and she can be sitting there knitting, and, and we're perfectly quiet in our silence. And uh, in fact, we still, our, our first anniversary, I, I made a copy of our wedding vows, and I got them mounted in our, our master bedroom. And, uh, and, and I look back and I said, well, dang, you know, we made our own vows up. So that's the, when you first get married, rather than having the generic, blah, 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 you know, we sat down and, and I told our girls, you need to do that too. You need to, if you're going to be marrying this guy, you two need to really understand each other. And one way of doing that is sit down and write your vows. What's important to you? And, uh, and so I guess, you know, and, and like everybody else, we've had our ups and downs and stuff. And, and a lot of it has to do with trust. You know, my, my best friend is a, uh, is a woman and I met Diane in college. That was 1966. We're still friends. So we're pushing what, I don't know, close to 50 years. We've known each other. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Chris knows that we chat periodically. We may go a year or two without talking. All of a sudden we were chatting every other day. Uh, Chris, takes off and, and she has these groups she goes up to Ireland and, and uh, I mean Scotland, Iona and a lot of other things and I'm perfectly I'm fine you know? and so part of it's just trust and, and allowing people if they need it you know their space yeah and allow them to grow and and, uh, and make sure you listen to what they have to say and uh because the way we are, both our minds, and she's smarter than I am, and uh, way smarter than me, actually. And our brains go a mile a minute. And, and so we'll get thoughts out before some, you know, before the other one gets the chance to say something. So we've, we've kind of figured out, like, <laughs> bite your tongue and, uh, and let her finish the thought before you comment. You know, it's the uh, some views and meetings. I want to get to the books and, and talk about them. But since we're talking about your wife, we're talking about family. I'd like to start with a book that I plan on talking about last, but I think it fits a little better right here. And it's congratulations. Your daughter is engaged. Now what? A father's emotional survival guide. Now I have three daughters of my own. You and I have talked about that. What was the reason? Because compared to your other books, this is way in the other direction of your other books. What was yeah, the is. reason it's, for writing this? Was it self-care yeah. for you? Was it to make other guys know how you were feeling and what you were going through or to help them through or kind of a culmination of all that? It was kind of all of the above. And, uh, you know, one of the things, and I think most of us guys, and uh, if the, if you start kind of thinking about any kind of emotional things or talking about your feelings, you really, we just tend to clam up. <laughs> as I say in the book, I said, we, we, you know, your daughter spends a lot of time thinking about the wedding and all this, but you know, guys just don't talk about this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and so I, I used to joke, I said, you know, when the girls get married, I'm just going to be an emotional basket case. And that was yuck, yuck, yuck. Well, little did I know <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that was the truth. I mean, big time. And, uh, and I, I just really had my my life rattled by that experience, and uh, and it's interesting because the only thing that um, you sometimes saw was you know way back in the day was what Father the Bride with Steve Martin, mm -hmm. yep, and 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 a lot of people watch that and, and yuck it, but you know that's just yuck yuck yuck. You know the dad is kind of a buffoon and you kind of yuck and joke your way through the wedding, and and again it's just joking and laughing 
to cover up what, what really is going on deeper inside. And so I rolled into this wedding and I'm sitting like, and when my first thought when I was going down the hill, when my, my oldest called me and I, I said, Oh, that means you're finally going to be paying for your own car insurance, you know, <laughs> yuck, yuck. And, and, uh, but then I started thinking about things and, and as the time came getting closer, I was, and I was fortunate in my, where my daughters and I were close. And so we, we talk about stuff and, and they actually allowed me in. And so, uh, and of course, one of the things that sort of helped the old, she was living in San Francisco and she was going to get married here in Hawaii. So Chris and I were doing a lot of the, of the planning and, uh, you know, the helping out the menus and, and they also understood budgets. So they knew, but we actually, when we, when the kids were born, we actually set up a marriage slash college fund. Okay. As I said, kids get, you know, when these kids go to college or if not, if they get married, that that's going to cost a bit of coin in spite of the, you know, running around, you know, cause you know, there's still a convention that the dads have to pay for all this dang stuff. Um, <laughs> that's changing a little bit and I don't know how much. Not a lot. <laughs> no, so it's still kind of in our plate. <laughs> anyway, so I started just kind of going through all this crazy stuff that happens. And, uh, and so I, I, and, and the other thing that prompted me to write it, as I said, man, all this stuff happened to me. I was just absolutely clueless what was going to happen. And, uh, but anyway, so when I, when I started writing this book, you know, I started making notes to myself after doing some internet research and finding absolutely nothing that really that really addressed the the really emotional core what happens to the the father during all this i mean he's literally a forgotten man right in fact i even did this thing to a some of the uh big time wedding magazines and one of them actually was interested but we we couldn't find a place to put it they said well maybe we'll put it with the pastor i said like well okay (laughs) Anyway, so that's the that's the problem. So nobody even, you know, of course, the wedding magazines are, are big in the selling stuff, but they do have right. articles on the bride and the bride's rooms and, the, you know, the, the mother of the bride and all that, but nothing about the poor guy. And so I I kind of divided this book up and interesting. I just kind of walked it through from the beginning, you know, driving down the road and my daughter called me and uh, and walking it through to the uh, the couple three days after the wedding. You know, after the uh, after the ceremony, I walked back. We had a uh, lucky enough. We had used our Marriott points, and we got the kids got married on the beach in uh, out on Coltina, and uh, and it was just an incredible setting. So we just kind of piled all the <clears throat> all the leftover cake, the <laughs> the center decorations, on a uh, on a cart, and just wheeled it back to our room. And I got back to the room, and and. He, Here's the, uh, you know, the uh, bag for the, the wedding gown still hanging there and all this stuff laying around and random presents. And I'm sitting there like, dang, <laughs> you know, what the heck just happened? So it was it was really a kind of a blow. But anyway, so the beginning of this thing. So I, I talk about, you know, when you hear about the engagement, how do you react to that? Um, was it positive? is kind of a whole hum that you just go on with your day that kind of gives you an idea of where your relationship is with your daughter and just your immediate response and then i had some things like uh you know taking the field uh relegated to the bench um or two of the chapter headings uh the meltdown and not mine although i could i could probably say i almost had one but my you know the daughter always you know the bride almost always has a, a meltdown just because of the stress of all this and her own doubts of like, what am I doing and all this? Anyway, so I'm hoping 
by writing this thing, if, if some of the guys actually sit down and, and read the thing, it might just kind of help ease them through this and their own transitions in life. Because about the time their daughters get married, uh, we guys are, are having our own transitions. You've been married like X number of years. You've been at the same job X number of years. Maybe you just retire from the military. I mean, there's a huge amount of stuff going on. And so while this is happening, the guy's asking himself like, well, am I happy with my life? You know, say, oh, you know, 40 year old kind of midlife crisis that most of us right. go through. Right. And so that's all wiped in. Anyway, so that's the uh, that's that book. And it was uh, really writing that dang thing was harder than writing my novels because I really <laughs> had to start kind of peeling away the layers of the onion. Well, and uh, I think you had to kind of look at yourself a little more, too. It's not it's not these normal books that you're writing. You kind of had to look at yourself, which I could understand it being a little more difficult, but you bring up the other books and and that's what we're here to really talk about. Um, these are great books. Uh, I like how you talk about them having action, but not the normal kind of action that you normally see in these kind of books. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of mystery and, and the characters to me look at things different, especially in Amber Dawn, when you introduce Nick Parkos and he's a different kind of hero. He still saves the day, but it's it's in a very different way than I've seen written before. So let's let's run through the books and talk about Flashpoint, Amber Dawn, Arctic Menace, and you know your highlights of them and what kind of brought you to writing each one of those books. And then talk about your fourth book that's on the way. And then I know that you have a couple other books that you're writing too. So let's let's go through these books first. Well, that's a that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of stuff to do. So I think I'll just go to the highlight reel and all this kind of stuff. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> so, but Flashpoint was number one, and I and that initially the, it was initially released as a self-published book under a different title, and uh, called the Asian Imperative. And uh, when I finally got an Austin Goodness publisher, we pulled that, and he said, "You really need to rewrite this thing." And so, and I look back on that and I said, well, it was written okay, but it was written by, a, you know, a total amateur. And, uh, but anyway, so I, there's a couple of things that got me thinking about that book way back in the day. One was when I was the, uh, with NavSent during the war, Gulf, first Gulf War. And it just struck me of just how much stuff was going on in the background, you know, at the executive level. You know, when I listened to my my two bosses, Emil Arthur and Emil Maas, and how they dealt with Schwarzkopf and how they interacted with the Secretary of Defense and State and the President. And that stuff is just, well, it never, hopefully never gets out because it's secret, even though the press was squawking like, why don't you tell us? Well, there's a reason it's secret. <laughs> but all this stuff that goes on in the background, it's like, so what's going on in you know, the Ukraine right now, you know, there's so much stuff going on that just we don't know about. So to make an accurate. And so at any rate, um, I said, well, okay, maybe it'd be interesting to kind of provide a perspective at some point of what really is going on. And then that was reinforced when I, when I finally got assigned to the, uh, as the fleet surgeon in the U S Pacific fleet, and, and seeing all the stuff that was going on with China, because part of the, the deal of my job there was writing the, the medical annexes for the various op plants. And uh, so uh, so one of the things I did is I took all the lessons learned from, from NAVSENT, 
in Desert Storm and then wrote that into the op plan for Korea. But again, uh, there was just all this stuff that was going on. And I was reading the message traffic again one day just randomly on my desk. And I'm sitting like, you know, nobody has a clue what's going on out here. And so that was the genesis. And so, you know, I started kind of collecting my thoughts. Of course, I didn't take my secret stuff and things. I had to be really careful about what I, you know, divulged. And uh, and I kept that pretty pretty much uh, in, in low key because I was still active duty at the time and still had my, my TS clearance. And, uh, and so I had to be careful about what I was talking about. But at any rate, so that all coalesced into a book. And I decided to go ahead and kind of build around my own experiences. When I was in Westpac on my ships uh, with the Marines to a, a small degree and then also on the staff. And so hopefully that provided some realism to the, to the background, some credibility to it. And, uh, and, that, and so that was sort of fun to do to kind of sit down there. I had to kind of cut back some of all the verbose stuff. So the intent was to uh, provide a perspective in the book from the decision process from the president down to the guys that actually had to execute the mission. Let's uh, let's point out something, though. When when you talk about that and you say that you, you didn't use your top secret stuff, but you still used a lot of your military stuff. The, the thing that I really loved about it was when you and I talked, you, you talked about how you talked to the actual people. You talked to actual pilots. You talked to actual people that did the job because you didn't want to mess up those parts right. of the story. You said that you – I thought it was funny. You said you'd been criticized because someone said you used clip instead of magazine for one. And you said, well, I think I can live with that. But for the important parts and the, the really, uh, I guess, the – things that people will really be looking at you took a lot of time right. in order to get people to look at that and tell you it's either right or it's wrong or this is how you should do it yeah, yeah. i mean that's the one thing i mean if you're if i decide to sit down and write romance novels of course that might be pretty boring if it was based on me but at any rate the uh <laughs> so i digress uh but anyway so what i did is for the uh for my my air combat uh the I actually went to the uh, the public affairs officer at, at PAC Fleet, and he turned out to be a pretty awesome third class photographer's mate in the Blue Ridge, and also a fleet surgeon. And now he's an 06. And so he said, Well, you need to talk to the N3, you know, our, our central air boss. And so um, he's an F 18 guy with just God, incredible amount of, you know, combat experience and, and all, you know, more traps than you can count on the carrier. And so he provided the, and he said, well, your, your cockpit chatters really not what we'd, uh, what we do, but you gotta get the point across. But the problem is the cockpit chatter is guess what? It's secret. <laughs> so, okay. So I really, so I had to use, you know, kind of had to use my imagination and say, well, I had to get this thing as close to as real as I could without really going into details, Absolutely. That, uh, which I knew, uh, the, Helicopter sequences. I went to my son-in-law, who's a uh, who's on tap to be a uh, uh, lieutenant colonel in the Marines here, and so um, so I had Brian kind of look at my uh, helicopter chapters and make sure I had that correct. And in fact, I used him again in Arctic Menace to make sure that I had that correct. Um, so when you're writing these you know, these military espionage kind of thrillers. Uh, I just finished reading one that you could tell the guy was was former CIA, 
just from the language you use and things. And so uh, with our audience, you got to have some credibility. I mean, if you're out there, I mean, Jesus, you can smoke out a, a guy that's never served within probably the first couple chapters. Right. And hoping that I was able to uh, convey some realism and in what I wrote. And I guess, you know, my uh, the folks who read it will be the final judge of that. But, the, you know, the bottom line is you just you want to have a, a fun story to read that kind of carries you along. And uh, talking about so that, uh, that fun story, though, I, what I liked was in Amber Dawn, you, you did something different there, too. You you took your um, your bad guy, you're essentially your bad guy, but you made him where it was kind of gray whether he was a bad guy. Yes, he was doing bad things, but when you look at the the wholeness of the picture, he was doing it for certain reasons, and um, you you took a kind of a different approach to the bad guy because as much as you uh, make him bad, you also show another side of him in in the flashbacks that go on in the story. So was there a reason that you decided to do a bad guy instead of making him a straight, just, you know, horrible person that you wanted to kind of level him out? Yeah. Well, the problem is when you, and I've read, you know, and always have read books and sometimes you, you get the bad guy and it's just one dimensional. And, and, and like anybody else in this, in the world, they, they have, you know, multiple levels of their personality. And so if you can actually kind of get in their heads a little bit and say, why are they doing this and provide a perspective? Um, you know, I just, the book I was coming, I just finished was, uh, the, that one was Damascus station. Okay. And I think the, uh, that was done really well as far as portraying the the characters in that book and and most of them were just nasty but again some of them were you could get a sense for you know why the hell are they doing this kind of stuff so um so in my book uh you know my my antagonist Bashir Al-Gutir was uh was checking and he was doing all the right stuff. So he was a uh, went to Moscow and got his uh, degree and then master's degree in nuclear engineering. Uh, the Russians were sent him to Paris to get his PhD and Wales and and uh, but then when, and then later on, um, when they had the Battle of Grozny, when the Russians you know initially got their butts kicked. Um, and then went back in and flattened the place. And then the paramilitaries, I read about a thing saying, well, they, there's a, you know, document thing where they, they killed like 50 civilians. And so I said, okay, that'll, that's not to set a guy off. Somebody kills his family. And, and so that's the genesis. And so this guy was out to seek retribution against the Russians and also against the folks he felt just didn't do enough to stop him. So that's what dragged in the French and the uh, and the Americans, and so he went around, you know, hijacked a uh, a uh, convoy of nuclear fuel rods and started constructing dirty bombs and sending them off. So, um, and the other thing I wanted to do is in the cover of the book, there's a sunflower, and his little girl when they lived in Paris, uh, they would go to South France, and her favorite flower was a sunflower. And so before he set one of his bombs off, he'd buy a bouquet of sunflowers. And so that's why it's on the cover with some petals coming off, sort of some some imagery of like, why the hell's he got flower in this book? But it really has to do with the uh, with the bad guys character. 
anyway, so uh, yeah, when it's done, so Parkos actually has some regret about, you know, finally bumping, chasing this guy down in Miami. I never liked Miami, I'm sure. I don't like South Beach. <laughs> and so I said, why not blow up South Beach? That'd be fun. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's Amber Dawn. With Arctic Menace, though, you, you, in all your books, but in Arctic Menace, you made a point of showing that uh, you, with the helicopter on front, you made the female pilot of that kind of in honor of your wife. Um, And so there's stuff throughout your books where you, you point out things like the, your son-in-law with the helicopter pilot and all those kind of things. Do you find it easier when you write stories like that? Uh, to include people into it, you know, because we've talked about it before where they say that the characters, the main characters are usually a little bit of what the author is. Do you find it when you use those family members, when you use those close friends, that it makes a character more relatable, so easier to write, or does it make it harder to write? Actually, I think, at least for me anyway, it makes it a little easier. And of course, I, I guess as a, uh, as a physician, I've got a little bit of a leg up on analysis of people, you know, cause that was part of the things I had to do is, is get in on my patient's head and figure out why, <laughs> well, besides what was going on, but also, you know, the other layers of how they would deal with their illness and this, that, and the other thing. And uh, in fact, uh, one of my, my friends from the Navy, he sent me an email and he says, dang, Ken, I think I know some of these guys. And I wrote back and said, well, yeah, you actually, you do. <laughs> and so I didn't know which ones it were, but he could figure it out. And, uh, but yeah, it's sort of kind of funny. And one of the really good writers they they really, and I need a lot of work in that too, is they just observe people. Their mannerisms, you may just overhear a conversation someplace and just how they interact, you know, the body language, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so if you can actually successful in communicating, you know, putting that down to to your in your writing in your book, then you've you've done a pretty good job. Well, and I think you did it great in Amber Dawn because like, like we were saying, this guy was very cultured, very refined, your bad guy. And so there's a lot of scenes where he's eating at a restaurant or ordering wine or meeting with people that he has to be someone else. And you see his progression of characters. Now, you also told me that your progression of characters as, as you've written them has grown and grown. Um, but you are focusing in kind of to do five of these books and you have the fourth one writing right now you're almost done uh and you plan one more after that and you're also gonna do some actual historical fiction but first i want to talk about completing the five series what your idea is to complete this five series and then why you're making the jump to nonfiction. the um yeah, the the one I'm working on now it's called the Curators, and it's a it's. I decided I didn't want to do CIA because I know nothing about those guys, so I decided to make up my own, you know, black ops unit within the NSA, and uh, and so that way I, I was able to be a little more freewheeling in my thoughts because nobody can say, well, that's not right because <laughs> I know the thing doesn't exist. At least I don't think it does, and. Uh, so, uh, but I wanted to do in, in number four is kind of, I is get into my Nick Parkos's head, my protagonist from Amber Dawn and Arctic Menace. And why the heck does he act like he does? 
and what happened to him. So uh, getting his backstory, um, he was orphaned. Uh, his mom died when he was young. His dad disappeared. Uh, but his grandparents took him out of, uh, of, che of uh, uh, Czechoslovakia at the end of the World War, you know, at the, probably in the 48, you know, when the Russians were really going in there. So they just bailed out and came into the States. They changed their name and he really had no idea what the heck happened. And part of the stuff too, is if you're orphaned, um, you always sort of wonder, you know, was it my fault? You know, why, what happened to my mom? And uh, so I wanted to kind of, you know, this is a little, kind of gets into a little psychological stuff, but again, it's a, it's a progression of your character. And, and so if you're, if you're lucky enough to get your, your readers invested in your, your protagonist, then maybe it's, it's time for them to learn something about why this guy is, is the way he is. Why does he interact with people? Anyway, so that was, so a lot of that's going in there. So the, uh, so that's one storyline. The, the plot line, though, is him going over there, and he was called back after he left the, the agency and sent over there to figure out uh, some nefarious plot, you know, and then uh, some uh, person that winds up turning out to be his cousin, of all things, is, is shipping arms to, um, oh, there's my cat. <laughs> God, everybody has to have a cat, right? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Really had the door closed. She got I, in. I uh, I do not, and I do not want one. Uh, my my kids are begging for one, but I do not want one. <laughs> it's, it's it's really not a cat. She's a squeaky toy. They're like what? The heck? <laughs> but at any rate, so where where the hell was I? Okay, so anyway, so um, so it turns out this guy's uh, shipping arms to this uh, crazy Mexican uh, drug lord who wants to invade the Southwest U.S. But in process of that, uh, the Russians get involved in this thing. And uh, and so it turns out that the Russian in charge of the uh, Prague station was Parkwitz's uh, collaborator, if you will, in Amber Dawn. So I brought her back. Okay. And she had her own interesting story. And uh, so her father was a, uh, a white Russian general. And so he was killed in the enclave in Crimea when they're evacuating the, uh, when the, when the, you know, Tsar's forces are finally defeated. So she has some ambivalent feelings about what she's doing, even though she was <laughs> with the FSB. Um, anyway, so all this stuff without giving away the ending. So I've got three of these really complicated, you know, this plot going on with, with Parkos. I've got the check-in and what he's trying to do and then the Russians. So I've got three, you know, a lot of intrigue going in there. And it's, and I find myself having to go back and make sure I don't, you know, I don't drop a, a plot line. Um, here's the thing. Uh, we talked about your guy that reads all your stories, Rob Ryder, and he does right. a fantastic job. Now he doesn't, he comes from a voiceover, but he is a air show announcer. Right. Rob, Rob and I were classmates in high school. And so this, you know, makes us, you know, really ancient. And he does the Blue Angels, Thunderbirds, uh, groups like the uh, Texas Air Force and uh, all the major air shows. And he's got a great reading voice. In fact, Absolutely. Uh, and he has a, an incredible background of, uh, well, he's a singer, guitarist. But when he does the voice, he has his own um, huge studio in his own home. And he goes out and researches. So he has a group of friends. And so when he was doing the, uh, the Chinese and the French, 
he he got the accent right. In fact, he wrote me back and he says something. You know, one of those Chinese lines you use. I showed it to a Chinese friend of mine, and they said that. that I, what is that? That didn't make any sense. So he called me out on what I thought. Google laid me astray. My translator. Anyway, so. So he goes back and not only does he translate this, you know, audio books, but he also is, is picking up all these little errors that, you know, when you have 90,000 words, you're going to miss something. And so he's, so he now he reads the audio book, but he also lets me know that, hey, you got a, a misspelling here or something like that. Uh, he's really a great guy. Um, he's really perfecting his, his, his uh, craft. So if anybody's out there looking for a, uh, uh, somebody to narrate an audiobook i'd i'd recommend rob yeah he he is fantastic i've listened to some of the books and and he is absolutely fantastic because you actually sent me chapter three and four of amber uh excuse me of flat uh arctic menace and then uh i had already purchased amber dawn both in book and then the audio form and he is uh you uh, sent me the book, and then I purchased the audio of it, and it, it was absolutely fantastic. Now, after you're done with all these books where you're just making up stories, you're going to actually get into real life, and you're going to follow some of your family's lineage down. And I thought it was super interesting, the book that you're going to start with. Yeah, the, it was. Uh, it's one of these things where one of my... Uh, my brother, uh, way back in the day, started genealogy, and he traced us back uh, to uh, 1635. And and we best we can figure out, he left Bristol, England, on the ship Angel Gabriel, which has its own history, which I won't go into. Shipwrecked off Maine, Pemaquoc, Maine, found his way down to Ipswich, Massachusetts, uh, got involved in the Pequot Indian Wars. That's how he got to be Lieutenant John Andrews. And, and then uh, got involved in the uh, uh, in the revolution. He was uh, one of the founding fathers of the revolution. Was thrown in jail in Boston for sedition. Survived all that. Got out. And then he, at the end of his life, got involved in the Boston witch trials. A guy named uh, James Proctor and his wife. And so he was out there with his son, you know, handing out flyers and everything, trying to get his friend from being burned at the stake. Now he saved the wife, but not, not the guy. And I said, well, this is, this is really pretty cool. And I've always loved historical novels. In fact, I'm reading a thing called The Conqueror right now uh, by a guy named um, Matthews, and it's about Alexander the Great. And it's just, uh, if you want to go back, it's published in 62. And what a You've won a really great historical novel about a phenomenal guy uh, and a warrior's Alexander the Great. So, anyway, so I've always liked those kind of novels, and I said, "Well, this this is pretty cool." And a hobby of mine is also making wooden ship models, and so I thought what I'd do. I've already got a lot of research on Angel on the ship Angel Gabriel, and so as I write the book, I'm gonna. My intent is is also have a parallel narrative and submit pictures as I build the ship. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, uh, well, you, you seem to do that with a lot of your books. You go in even on your website and you talk about what your idea was behind it and, uh, where you came up with the ideas. I, I think that that, do you agree that that kind of puts you closer with your audience? Cause it gives them kind of a feeling that they know where you're coming from. 
yeah, I kind of get, you know, I, you know they don't, they don't want to know me too much because it probably just fry their brain. <laughs> but, but the, uh, you know, so like when I tell folks like, welcome to my brain, you know, and I said like, oh, that's pretty scary. <laughs> and, uh, but at any rate, uh, but I thought that'd be just kind of a fun thing to do. So, you know, it's an historical novel. Then number two, uh, the if I get that one out, the one following now is going to be about his wife named Jane Jordan. And her family is really pretty cool back in England because her family is traced back, well, way the heck back to um, a guy named Sir John Jourdain, well, the French spelling of Jordan. And he was a, uh, a Norman knight who wound up getting killed in a rebellion in Ireland when the, <laughs> so anyway, so I said, well, God dang, this would be kind of fun. So I'm going to, it's going to be, that's going to be a wild one. Cause I have to be putting my head in the, in the, the head of a, you know, a wife and the, an American columnist from her perspective. And I'm sitting like, well, that's going to be a challenge, but why the heck not? I've got two girls. And, uh, so Maybe and a, a wife legacy. of 43 years. I think you'll be able to yeah. pull a little bit of, of feminine idea out of it or a little, a little of what the woman is thinking. Let's, yeah. let's talk about, because that, you know, we're already talking, you, you have four books that are already planned out. I mean, you've got a ton planned out. Let's talk about where people can find you because there's a lot of places. And I think that everyone should check all these out because each one of them is a little different piece of you. I think with the Instagram, you show a lot of your food and things like that. Your Twitter is more of your ideas and things like that. And then Facebook, of course, shows pictures and what you're doing and, and your progress on your stuff. So let's go through those. The first one is KennethAndrews.com. You can see right. it on the screen there. It's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-A-N-D-R-U-S.com. Uh, that's the main one. You can find where you can pick up the books. You can find everywhere that it's out. You can find a little bio about you and kind of what you're up to. Now, people can find you on Twitter at Andrews underscore MD, and they can find you on Instagram at K underscore Andrews four eight, and they can find you on all these. Now on Facebook, they can find you on author Kenneth Andrews. Uh, and make sure you put the author in front of that. That'll take you right to them. Is there anywhere else that people can find you? Um, besides my, in Hawaii, um, those, yeah. those are the, <laughs> I digress again. No, I think those are probably the, the three main sites. Um, you know, periodically we're delving into, um, oh geez you know goodreads and things like this but i haven't really got into that i actually had to break down since i'm a computer phobe and a technophobe i finally uh, got a publicist and so poor poor thing i'm really <laughs> i stress her out but anyways we're gradually expanding stuff you know because most of us of the of the novelists if you talk to them i mean we love writing but man the the uh, you know the publication and stuff <laughs> one of my friends who's a New York Times best author who's actually helping me with the, uh, the fourth, you know, novel number four. And she told me years ago, you have to shamelessly self promote. And, you know, most of us authors are kind of introverts a bit, and that's really hard to do. <laughs> so most of us said, like, can I just write the dang book and just like, let it take care of itself? Well, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do you gotta do a little more than that unfortunately so i've been i've been lining up some speaking gigs at some conferences 
you know, international thrillers writers. I did an interview interview with those guys, which is I'll end on this. It was fun. It was one of the, the greatest questions I ever had. Um, the guy asked me, he said, well, you you quote Sun Tzu, you know, the art of war. Absolutely. You quote him a lot in your books. I said, well, how does how does his philosophy apply to your writing? I was like, oh, jeez, I don't, <laughs> that was brutal. <laughs> so anyway, so one of my conferences I'm going to speak at in the, in the fall, I'm writing a book, and Sun Tzu and the Art of Writing. Oh, nice. So, yeah, but when you do this, you really, when you do these conferences, you know, it's like, when you do anything, like you're you're doing a command brief. I mean, the stuff you learn by doing this stuff, you old Navy murder boards, when I'd sit down with the chief of staff and the admiral, and they'd pick apart my presentations when I had to go up to the Pentagon or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and so I guess that made me a little thicker skin. Some of the authors are pretty thin skin and they get pretty riled up about stuff. And I said, well, if you're going on this business, you, you gotta learn to, you know, take your knocks and roll them. And, uh, and if, you know, people like it great. If they don't, I man, I had some really snarky reviews <laughs> and I said, well, if you don't like it, why the hell did you buy it? <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, and here's the way I look at it. You already bought it. So if you don't like it, I'll look at it for the next one, but you already paid for that one. So let's run down the list real quick. Uh, I want to point out robrider.com. That's if anyone's looking for a voiceover, that's the guy that reads all your books. Uh, and that's a pretty cool, I guess he's building a new website right now. So he has a smaller version of it as of right now, he's building a bigger version with all of his voice actor. Um, I think he has some voice talent stuff in there where you can actually hear the stuff that he's done. And then for people to find you, kennethandrews.com, they can find you on Twitter at Andrews underscore MD. They can find you on Instagram at K underscore Andrews four eight, and they can find you on Facebook at author Kenneth Andrews. I appreciate it so much. You coming in here talking about everything that we've talked about. We've kind of scanned the world on this one, medicine, Vietnam books. Uh, and I, I see a huge future for you. I know that sounds crazy being this, the second chapter after retirement, but a huge future with these books. And I'm looking forward to not only the fifth of the series, but also into these foray that you're doing new with the with the true to life stuff, with the family stuff. And I want to thank you so much. I know you're busy stopping by here, talking to us about it. And we hope that people will go to Goodreads, give you uh, a little idea of what they thought about the books and help you out. We'll put the link in the show. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Also, don't forget to go to our partners, Tier 1 Outdoors. They're a 501c3 national nonprofit organization, and they provide hunting and fishing opportunities to the elite members of law enforcement and the military. You can find them at tier1outdoors.com and go buy Badass Boxes. They're a 501c3, and they serve the special operation troops deployed in the worst locations around the world. They send packages that are not generic. They're crafted around each unit based on their specific needs, wants, and desires. And they make each list by establishing a connection with someone at the actual location that they're sending these. The list can be updated anytime to keep the men and women as happy as they can with American resources as possible. And you can find them at badassboxes.org. 
Guys, thank you so much for coming by. Ken, thank you so much for coming by. That's going to be the show for this week. That's Ken. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.